0: Craft Beer, The Next Frontier. These are the journeys of the brews traveler. Our mission, to seek out fantastic craft breweries, to meet the interesting life forms that brew beer, and to boldly drink that which we have never quaffed before. Welcome to episode number one.
1: Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint than anybody, Alan Tatman.
0: Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Bruised Traveler. Thanks for discovering us out here in the podcasting universe. I am your host and the chief cat herder of the Bruce Traveling team, Alan Tatman. This episode is dropping on June 19th of 2018, along with another three episodes premiering on this day. And from this point on, we will have a new episode in your podcast feed every week. All you have to do is subscribe and it'll be there for you to enjoy. Since this is our first episode, I thought I would start out by telling you just exactly how we came up with this idea. Some things about me and about this fantastic team that we have pulled together. And So that being said, let's get started. What is the Brews Traveler? Well, it's going to be tales from the road about our adventures, driving a small RV around the country, sometimes with my wife, Marilee, and sometimes with friends and members of the Brews Traveler team. We'll be discovering craft breweries all across North America. Some of these breweries you've heard of, some you have yet to discover, but regardless, each week we're going to try to bring you something interesting about the independent craft beer universe. We'll have interviews, and we'll also look at the history of the towns, cities, and neighborhoods that support craft brewing. And we'll have reports from our associates about what's going on in the wide, wild world of craft beer. We'll look at trends and directions in which the craft brewing industry is headed, and legislation that could impact the industry. And we'll have stories about bars, pubs, and taverns across the country that support and feature craft beer. And since I haven't owned an RV very long, we're going to have a segment called The RV Rookie, with tips and tricks that I've learned along with do's and don'ts, and maybe we'll laugh at some of the mistakes that I've made on the road. And we'll also have stories and anecdotes from the various places we visited while out searching for craft beer. And in between all of that, hopefully, there will be some witty banner, timely commentary, and maybe a brew or two or three or four... Who knows? We're just getting started. Now here's the short story of how I came up with the idea for The Bruce Traveler. Eighteen years ago, I left a very secure job with the state of Missouri, and I bought a historic yet run-down and struggling tavern in Jefferson City. At the time, there wasn't anyone in the town who was featuring a wide selection of craft and import beers. They might have had one on tap, if that. But that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to feature and explore the world of craft and import brews, which was something that wasn't really being done in our city at that time. At the time, I was told by one of the big brewery distributors in the area, and being in Missouri, you might guess who that was, that we'd never make it in Jefferson City selling all of those, and I quote, funny beers. Today, Patty Malone's is a very popular local pub and a destination bar in mid-Missouri. Now, over the past few years, when Marilee and I would be able to travel around the country and even to Europe, we would always try to sample local brews and visit craft breweries when we were able. Two years ago, we decided to rent a motorhome, and we packed up the dogs, and we headed west to Wyoming and South Dakota. Now, while we were in the Black Hills, we discovered this fantastic little brewery the Miner's Brewing Company in Hill City. And as we were sitting there drinking our pints in the warm late afternoon sun, I mused, wouldn't it be cool if we could travel around and visit all of the different craft breweries around the country? Marilee said, of course, it would be great, but how are we ever going to manage that with having to run the pub? And besides that, she said, there's no way we could be gone for more than a week or two at a time and then only a couple of times a year. So let's fast forward a year later to this past October. I'm at home one night watching the late great Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown television program. And if you're not familiar with the show, Bourdain travels around the world. He's eating local cuisine. He's talking to the local people, exploring the culture and history of the locale. And it was then that it hit me. Was there anybody out there that was doing that kind of show, a travel log, in which they were featuring craft breweries? I got up, I immediately got online, I looked it up, and no, not really. There was a blogger or a journalist here and there that was writing about craft beer and independent breweries, but nobody was taking this act on the road. There was an opportunity, I thought, for somebody to do just that. I called my friend Bernie Fechtel, who owns the local beer distributorship that features Kraft Brews. And I've been doing business with Bernie for 18 years, and I respect his opinion. And I, he said, yeah, it sounds fantastic. What's, what do we need to do to get it going? So that gave me the impetus to get going. The next thing I did was I checked for the name, The Bruce Traveler. Nobody had, had registered or trademarked, so I did that. Then I started telling some of my close friends about the project, and immediately we began to see interest from others wanting to get involved. So we started pre-production right after the first of the year. Marilyn and I bought a small RV, which we have named Brewlissy's, And I convinced her that, yes, we should take some time off if we want to. So I started contacting breweries, mostly here in the Midwest, St. Louis, Kansas City, Chicago. But we also had a trip planned to go out to Arizona for a wedding. So I called some places out in New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. And on our way out there, we dropped in and we did some interviews. We also made some phone calls and reached out to people who are involved in the world of craft brewing across the nation, and that pretty much brings us up to speed. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you a brief bit about our team that we've assembled, because these guys are the ones that are going to help me make this a success. Besides myself, there were two other guys who were extremely helpful in getting the ball rolling. Um, A longtime friend of mine, Brian McGeorge, who is taking care of our graphics and web design on the project and a loyal customer to the pub, Tim McVeigh of Mission Digital Marketing, whose expertise in marketing and promotion is going to be invaluable in this project. Also joining us, another longtime friend of mine, videographer Tom Baker, a Bravo creative, and freelance journalist Tony Rehagen, who is assisting me with content and news reporting. And there's another journalist, Jessica Macheta, whose lovely voice you heard at the introduction of the show. You'll also hear her between segments. And she will also be filing reports from time to time about the craft beer scene out where she's living in the Denver-Boulder, Colorado area. To round out the team, we have George Carr Jr. and Aaron Austin, They will be advising and assisting us on social media presence and information technology, respectively. And I want to thank all of them for coming on board with us. The great thing about these guys, all of them are friends of mine, and it was they who readily wanted to come and help. I couldn't be happier to have them on board. So that's the brief bio about the Bruised Traveler Project. So now, let's get on with the show.
1: And now we head on down the road with the Brews Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out.
0: Springfield, Missouri, Jessica, the home of Mother's Brewing Company. Um, back in December, I was just getting started on this project and I was down in the Springfield, Missouri area and I thought, you know what, Jeff Schrag, the owner founder of Mother's Brewing, would be great for our first show. I've learned a lot about craft brewing from Jeff over the years that uh, I've known him. Uh, We were one of the first pubs in Jefferson City to feature Mother's Beer on draft. But before we get to the interview, let's take a little closer look at Springfield, let you know some things you might not have known about the Queen City of the Ozarks. With a population of around 160,000, Springfield is the third largest city in the state of Missouri, behind St. Louis and Kansas City. Springfield is also the county seat of Greene County and is the home to Missouri State University, formerly Southwest Missouri State, which happens to be the alma mater of actors John Goodman and Kathleen Turner. Springfield is also the boyhood home of Brad Pitt, who attended Kickapoo High School. Now, how the city got its name is a bit of a controversy. One popular legend has it that at the time that the citizens were voting for then the unnamed town's name, a man named James Wilson, a native of Springfield, Massachusetts, offered free whiskey to anyone who would vote for the name Springfield. A local historian named Holcomb rebuffed this story about James Wilson back in 1881, when he wrote that the town took its name from the circumstance of being a spring under the hill on the creek, where on the top of the hill, where the principal portion of the town lay, there was a field. Sounds a bit too easy and a bit too contrived for me, but there it is. The local newspaper editor, a man named Newbill, published in the Springfield Express, it has been stated that this city got its name from the fact of a spring in a field being nearby just west of town, but this is not a correct version. When the authorized persons met and adopted the title of the Great Future of the Southwest, several of the earliest settlers had handed in their favorite names, and among which was Kindred Rose, who presented the winning name, Springfield, in honor of her former hometown, Springfield, Tennessee. And there it is, a direct quote from the town's newspaper in the 1880s. So, we have three legends about how Springfield got its name. I actually think they probably named it after that uh, great American explorer, Jebediah Springfield. And if you've watched one particular animated cartoon show, which has been the longest running television program in, uh, History, you know who that is. Before white settlement in the 1830s, the area saw the Osage, Kickapoo, and Delaware tribes inhabiting the area. And all of these tribes had been pushed westward into southwest Missouri from locations east of the Mississippi River by the expansion of the growing United States. The Delaware were also known as the Lenin Lenape, and they were originally from around the Delaware River region in southern New York and New Jersey. The Kickapoo were from the Wabash River Valley of Indiana and Illinois, and the Osage had migrated from the Ohio River Valley as a result of a pre-European contact war with the Iroquois Confederacy. The first settlers of European descent came to the area in 1829 from Tennessee. So there's where the Springfield, Tennessee thing has some validity, okay? Uh, one John Polk Campbell, who was deeded 50 acres by the Missouri State Legislature, he established a county seat for the newly formed Green County in 1835. In 1838, the year that Springfield was incorporated, one of the darkest periods in American history cast its shadow over the town. Along the old wire road, which ran from St. Louis to Springfield and beyond, Native American peoples, the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Ponca tribes, were marched forcibly from their homes in the southeastern United States on the Trail of Tears. Andrew Jackson, then president, took advantage of populist sentiment and forced the natives into the territory which would later become Oklahoma. Of the 16,000 plus natives on this forced march, it's estimated that between two and 6,000 died along the way. The true numbers will never really be known. By 1861, Springfield had grown to more than 2,000 inhabitants, and was the most important commercial hub of the region. And with the opening of the American Civil War, both the Union and Confederate armies recognized the strategic importance of the Queen City of the Southwest. The first major battle of the Civil War west of the Mississippi opened on August 10, 1861 at Wilson's Creek, just south of Springfield. The Union commander, General Nathaniel Lyon, was killed in the fighting, becoming the first Union general to die in the war. The Confederate forces, which consisted primarily of the Missouri State Guard, led by General Sterling Price and exiled Missouri Governor, Clariburn Fox Jackson, numbered 12,000 men to the Union's measly 5,400 soldiers. The Southern forces easily won the battle, forcing the leaderless Union Army 120 miles back up the old wire road to Rolla, Missouri. Casualties on both sides were severe, over 1,300 for the federal troops and 1,200 for the Confederates. And General Price was overruled by the Confederate General of the Arkansas troops and the rebels did not pursue the Union Army. Price and the Missouri State Guard officially joined the Confederate States Army and retreated to the winter camps in Arkansas, allowing the Union, under the leadership of General John C. Fremont to retake Springfield for a brief moment in 1861. The Confederates again attempted to take the city in January of 1863, but the attempt failed and Springfield remained under Union control through the remainder of the war. Springfield is also known as the birthplace of the legendary Route 66, the U.S. transcontinental highway that ran from Chicago to Los Angeles. The number 66 was first officially designated to a piece of highway running through Springfield, the first place in the country to have that designation on April 30th, 1926. While the remnants of the old road have been covered up and replaced by other highways, mainly Interstate 44, in this part of Missouri, there are still historic route signs to be seen in Springfield, where the route is used to come through the city And one of the streets passes right by the subject of this week's interview, Mother's Brewing Company. And so that's just a brief history of Southwest Missouri, or Missouri, depending upon where you are from in Missouri or Missouri. I grew up in Hannibal. We said Missouri when I was growing up. And then I traveled around the country, and every time I would say Missouri, somebody would correct me. Don't you mean Missouri? No, I mean Missouri. It's my state. I know how to say it. Um, So anyway, it's still a controversy here. I have just started saying Missouri because I don't want to get into a discussion about how to say the name of my state. Where was I? Jessica, what are we doing now?
1: Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guest. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now here's Alan and his guest.
0: Well, here we are in the Queen City of the Ozarks, Springfield, Missouri, and I'm sitting here talking at Mother's Brewing Company with my good friend, good friend Jeff Schrag. I Hello say well, that. Alan. Did you I say that correctly? You for pronounced
2: it perfectly.
0: Thank you, sir. <laughs> but we're here at Mother's Brewing, which is one of our favorite craft breweries in the state of missouri uh time and again fantastic beers i have not had one of your beers that i did not like on one level or another now some i loved more than others but all of them are excellent they're very 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 good well
2: thank you very much i i understand what you mean there are styles that are not my style and i can appreciate a good good version
0: of them right now we're sipping on this is the uh Cobra Scare? Cobra Scare. Yeah, it's a nice sour. Uh, tell, tell us about this.
2: So we bill this as an Ozark-style wheat. And uh, Cobra Scare, first of all, it's a local name. There was a Cobra Scare in Springfield in 1953 when about a dozen king cobras were let out of a pet shop and <laughs> made national news. And there's famous photos of a cop with a dead cobra and somebody killed a cobra on the way out to get his newspaper. True story. Pretty much. So, 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 so a good tart wheat beer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the tarting comes from a kettle uh, technique we do in brewing the beer—a kettle souring technique that evokes the citrus. So, I like to say no citrus was killed to make this beer. Uh, it came from yeast.
0: So it's it's just it's nice, light, refreshing. But what's the ABV on this?
2: It is uh, oh, right at five
0: percent. Right at five. Well, so this you could drink a few of these and be okay. Yes, sir. Walking around the facility here, you guys get a lot of beer out of a very small brewery. How how many square feet have you got here?
2: So we're about 30,000 square feet, something like that. Okay. Um, but some of it is unusable as a second floor office that we're sitting in right now, right. Alan and I are, that we haven't done anything to. Uh, so about 28,000 square feet.
0: And um, what's your, how many brew lines have you got? So we'll
2: package 20 different beers a year, maybe 22. And we will produce about 60 different beers a year. Okay. That's really roughly. Uh, We brew on a single brew house. We now do all of our test batching by simply smaller quantity batches on the brew house.
0: Okay, And what's your capacity annually? We
2: could do about 12,000 barrels in-house. And this year we're going to sell just shy of
0: 10, so a little bit of room to run. Okay. Um, And distribution, you're in Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas...
2: That's exactly right. Just a sliver of Kansas, just the Kansas City counties. Okay. Almost every wet county in Arkansas save two. And all of Missouri south of I-70. Right. We go north in Columbia and Kansas City. Okay. But in February, we'll be in St. Louis.
0: Very nice. And we're pretty excited about that. Do you know where you'll be in St. Louis?
2: Not yet. Okay. But we hope we'll be in lots of places in St. Louis.
0: When, uh, when was the company founded here?
2: So I'll use a couple different dates. I had the idea day after Thanksgiving 2008. I bought this building in June of 2010, so it took me more than a year to find a location. And then we had our first batch of beer brewed April 1, 2011. Uh, right here, we sold our first beer May 12 of 2011. Nice. So about two and a half years from Notion to uh, actual sales. And uh, how many employees? There's about 20 right now. Right. I like to say that sales are double what I thought they would be and expenses are triple what I thought they would be.
0: Tell me, how did you get into brewing? Because this isn't your background. It is not. I'm a journalist by profession
2: and I became a serial entrepreneur as I uh, had a couple newspapers, got nervous about the future of newspapers back in the late 1990s. Um, started some other businesses bought some other businesses and literally this is a destination career for me in about 07 I thought you know I've got one more business in me what do I want to do and I quickly decided I didn't want it in printing or publishing or anything like I've done before and it struck me to do a craft brewery um, always toyed with the notion of distillery, winery, brewery never put it in motion As a good drinker, you think a lot about where the product comes from.
0: Do you remember when the light bulb went off?
2: Literally, I was reading an article in The New Yorker, sitting on the toilet, and it was an article (laughs) about extreme craft beers. And I thought, wow, I could do this in downtown Springfield, and I could brew beer as good as anybody, anywhere. So that was my genesis of the idea.
0: What's the story behind the name? So we really
2: went back and forth on names just trying to find something that fit what I wanted to avoid was something named for a geographical feature or something named after me one of those two things right and so the idea of mothers came from our marketing company and they had this notion of a familial brand and everybody would be a member of the family every beer would I told them look I'm an only child never married um, no children I can't pull off family I also said the only time I say mothers if the word football comes (laughs) after I don't know if you can use that in the podcast. <laughs> no, that'll we'll, be fine. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, see yeah. what happens. Yeah, we'll be fine. But then we had to pick a name. And so Jeremy, our director of sales and marketing, said, what if we go back and look at every name we rejected with new eyes? So we did. And he said, what about mother? Not as in family, but as in love. And that's what clicked for us. Love beer. Love a good time. Love this idea. Mother standing for love. The idea of a mom cooking the family's favorite food in the kitchen, us cooking the community's favorite beer in the brew house, that's where it all
0: came together. Your logo is, you know, I remember a lot when growing up in the 60s and 70s, a lot of these old sailors from World War II, and you would see tattoos very similar to your logo, the heart with the banner across it said, Mother, A Mother's Love or Mother. And that's the first time I remember seeing your logo. That's what I thought of.
2: That was a lucky accident. I actually sketched that on a fax cover sheet, if anyone remembers fax machines. And yeah. it was a sketch. And actually, I, I still have it. They
0: used those in World War Two. They used <laughs> those in World War Two, yeah, to, to,
2: to confound the
0: uh, encryptions. Yeah,
2: right. And I'd written Mom's Brewery on the very first one. Anyway... And so it turns out nobody had it trademarked. We were able to make it our own in beer, and that's been a really lucky thing for us. It was all luck. I wish it was intentional.
0: You've been in this business now. How many years was it? it so we started six and a half years ago. Six and, so and a half years ago. May it seems like 11. longer. It seems like it's, longer. It, yeah. it, well, no, because I, I, I'm thinking now here, we've had your beer on tap probably since the first year it became available in Jefferson City. Yeah, five now, years. And so it seems like... Uh, You've been around a much, much longer time. The presence in our market, it it seems that way.
2: Yeah, so we launched, the, the Springfield Chamber of Commerce has a big event once a year in Jeff City. That's the night we launched in Jeff City. Cool. And I came to your place that night.
0: What's been the most surprising thing? I guess what I'm saying is, what did you discover that you didn't think would come around?
2: The number one thing in southwest Missouri, which is a little bit of a Bible Belt-ish area, I thought we'd have some resistance to promoting alcohol like we have, and we didn't. And it was like the southwest Missouri community was waiting for a brewery to root for. That continues to surprise me to this day that we've never had any kind of pushback on an alcohol Level from folks. Now, craft beer was still a newer thing. You could still walk into bars and ask for a craft beer, and they'd say, Do you mean a draft beer? Right, right. Um, And you'd have a hard time back then. That's pretty hard to do these days. But uh, that pushback we've never had. It's that notion of crafting a product. Right. Immediately, people associate that with something romantic and something noble.
0: Well, was there a brewery here prior oh, to yeah. Prohibition? So Dinkledine's uh-huh. was
2: the big brewery uh, before Prohibition, and they were actually located right down the street
0: from us. Is that There's a building over there It says Brewer's Flats? That is not. So okay. that, that's a brand new okay. building that's but, been built. Uh, but they named that Brewer's Flats after you?
2: After us, and then the Springfield Brewing Company is okay. also on the other side of that building. Okay, all right. And some of the owners of the brewing company own that
0: that apartment building. Okay, Dinkeldine, back to these so guys. So
2: Dinkeldine was located right next to the railroad and they used uh, some caverns they hollowed out mm-hmm. for their storage and for cold fermentation and every so many years those caverns will get rediscovered. And so a guy <laughs> from the utility sent me the utility sent a spelunker down into those caverns in the mid 60s, more than 50 years ago. They got rediscovered in the last three years, and the utility sent me the Spelunker's report, which was fascinating, about there's a couple of caverns, there's a lot of trash down there, there's some old furniture, but basically what the Spelunker concluded was the railroad equipment just kind of hollowed it out, because they were always using the bluffs for gravel. Right. Or for block. And then they built some caverns in there next to the bluff and the brewery was built somewhat on top or beside of those caverns. Neat. And just five blocks
0: from here. Because in in those days if you were going to make a lager beer especially, you had to have a cold storage area and before the days of of, uh, mass refrigeration. Yeah, I've noticed this. One of the reasons St. Louis and Milwaukee ended up being beer havens was because of the caves that were there available both cities and made it easy for them right that was your most surprising thing that uh, you thought there would be some backlash from the local community and luckily there wasn't luckily there there wasn't what in that amount of time has given you the most satisfaction
2: so still for me to this day is being somewhere it used to be here in town Um, now it's usually somewhere outside of springfield when i see someone i don't know have no idea what their association is, and they're either wearing something that says mothers, or they come to a bar and they ask about mothers, and I realize I have no idea who this person is or how they know about my beer, but here they are drinking my beer to this day. That still is absolutely fascinating to me and just makes me feel wonderful. That, that is great. It's, it's been interesting. I'm not trying to get ahead of you, but the arc of the sales process has been fascinating. Out. Right. So in the beginning, yes, you were getting them to try craft beer, and there was a resistance to craft beer as a notion. Right. Now it is so much more competitive – it is witchcraft beer and why my craft beer and why this flavor over another flavor so the sales arc has changed right. completely completely there still is it seems like resistance but i guess there wouldn't it wouldn't be sales if there wasn't
0: resistance but for the craft beer drinker now in the state of missouri it's boom i mean i think columbia has 3 or 4 breweries alone st louis i don't know there's got to be more than 10 Exactly. And then, you know, you guys down here, Boulevard of course. I don't think there's any I don't I don't know of any other names in Kansas City that quite compete with Boulevard. Well, no one competes with Boulevard. No. You know,
2: nationally, they're one of the biggest dogs. There are newer breweries in right. in Kansas City. You're exactly right, Alan.
0: There's another. Have you been to this one up here in the up in Houston County, Texas County? I have Piney yeah, River. Piney River. They are good friends. Of mine. Oh, uh, I haven't met them because they were away at the Denver Beer Festival when I went and uh, when I went up there, but. Yeah, Piney River Brewing, you think you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're going to get lost, and you're going to hear banjos and see the kids sitting on the front porch at Deliverance. And then all of a sudden, you come over this rise, and there it is. And there's a brewery. Brian and Jolene, is that? Brian and Jolene, exactly I'm going to be going and interviewing them very soon, too, and hear their story. They are great folks that's what everybody says that knows them and a, a good friend of mine who's a photographer he does some work for them and he says they're just they're a joy to work with and I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting them
2: And and Alan just real quick you know as a beer drinker in Missouri look at the variety I'm getting look at the passion I'm getting from all these different brewers I mean what a time to be a beer drinker
0: oh I know it's we are in the halcyon days for beer drinking I mean you know, when I was in college, we had two kinds of beer: we had regular and light. And then I remember, uh, you know, we oh, you could get some imports, but nobody could afford an import. I told my friend Brooks, who uh, went, to, we went to grad school together. We were up at Revolution Brewing in their, in their tasting room, and I said, you know what? If these guys had been around when we were in school, we would have never gotten anything done. <laughs> 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 you know. Well, besides breaking into the market, what other challenges have you seen in, in the independent craft industry? I,
2: I tell you, I'll take a, a technical stab at that. And in the beginning, I had this notion that, you know, the big brewers, what they're selling you is consistency, just like McDonald's is. You go in, eat the same thing every time. Whereas we craft brewers, you know, we're selling you a little bit of our heart. And what we believe in and how we're brewing it. But I believe, like a local food place, you give them some leeway. And, okay, this is a little different today than it was last week, if you can remember that, because they're creating it. Right. As we have grown, um, I now believe that window is actually a little bit less for beers you're bringing out all the time. And we have worked harder than I ever thought we would have worked on keeping those batches consistent. And things like water pH, and making sure we know the pH of anything we add to it. And testing the pH at the last possible moment in which we can affect it. And those are basic things for the big brewers that I think a lot of small brewers don't quite have a grasp on yet. So those technical hurdles that makes a really good brewer a really good brewer are still as important for craft as they are to the big beers, but for us then you're also adding inspiration and creativity and nuance. And I don't want to preach about, oh, it's harder doing what we're doing than anybody else, because truly producing exactly the same beer all the time is is an art, because things change. They do. Crops change, humidity changes, water changes, everything changes.
0: Hey, how about uh, we head down to the uh, tasting room and try out another beer? <sighs> Sounds great, Alan. Okay. Well, we're here in the tasting room now at Mother's Brewing Company. Welcome, and Alan. Got, thanks a lot. And I am having here their interpretation of an Irish dry stout. And I will say, as somebody who knows Irish dry stouts, this is a fine pint. This is a nice jar here you got. Um, this is called GB's Dry Stout. That's exactly right. And it is... Merrilee, you're going to love this. It tastes like a cross between Murphy's and Beamish, but, but, it's got more chocolatey and mocha hints. I don't know, it's not sweet, it's a dry stout, but the, that taste of mocha and chocolate is very, very prevalent in a mouthful of this. I'm going to take a drink here right now. Mm. Ah, that's good. Now, is this going to be, um, uh, coming out to uh yes available draft only uh any
2: place where folks want it
0: great uh how many drafts do you normally run online here at the tasting room
2: we normally run 24 and our
0: goal is
2: it's you're gonna laugh at this our goal is to keep them full right and we have a lot of experimental beers on there a lot of first stabs at things and in the past, we have feaster, we have family. Yeah. We'll be down to hardly any beers. Maybe we'll have ten taps. Maybe we'll have eight taps. And then suddenly, uh, it's like, oh my gosh, we got to get this moving. What are we going to do about this? We're down to the last keg. Should we pour it out because we've got more new beer to put on? So we've done a really good job this year, especially
0: well, it, of it, keeping them all full. It's a great, uh, it's a great facility here, uh, and you're open, you're open. Tuesday through Sunday?
2: Tuesday through Sunday, typically 4 to 7, and then on Friday and Saturday it's 1 to 8, and then Sunday it's 2 to 5.
0: So you folks that are out there traveling Route 66 at some point in time, when you're on I-44 and you come to Springfield, find Mother's Brewing Company here on Grant Avenue?
2: Yes, Grant and College, which is College's Old Route 66. Yep.
0: Grant and College, Old Route 66, and you'll find Mother's Brewing Company there. And uh, before we get out of here, Jeff, I've got five questions. Well, I'm both uh, excited and nervous, Alan. No idea what those are. <laughs> it's about famous mothers. Wow. All right, it's not. It's not. It's not as not as uh, awe-inspiring as you might think. Well, All right, okay. are you ready? It's okay. the lightning round. Five questions with Jeff Schrag of Mother's Brewing Company. June Cleaver or Carol Brady? No, oh, Carol Brady there you go Wilma or Betty Betty yeah of course Lois Griffin or Marge Simpson
2: I'm gonna say Marge Simpson
0: there you go Roseanne or Peg Bundy Peg Bundy Peg Bundy alright and last but not least Morticia Adams or Lily Munster oh
2: my goodness Morticia from the movie
0: Exactly right. You passed the test. All right. (laughs) Jeff, thanks so much uh, for coming on Brews Traveler with me. And uh, wish you great success. And I know we'll be seeing a lot of each other in the near future.
2: Alan, I feel the same way about you. Thanks,
0: buddy. (laughs) Thanks. All right, folks. So. Thanks to Jeff and all the great folks over there at Mother's Brewing in Springfield. Um, I wanted to follow up on the story about the cobra scare in Springfield. And this is from Atlas Obscura. And if you're not familiar with Atlas Obscura, you should be. It's a great website about these strange happenings and places, geographically speaking, all over the country. In 1953, Springfield, Missouri was a city of about 65,000 people, and at least 11 escaped Indian cobras slithering loose on the streets. Between August and October, at least 11 of the snakes were either killed or captured in Springfield, much to the alarm of the residents, many of whom fought back with a common gardening tool. While a local pet shop was always suspected to be the source of the snakes, its owner denied any involvement. It would be 35 years until the person who set the reptiles free came forward. The first cobra was spotted in a yard on August 15th. The homeowner quickly killed it with his garden hoe. And anybody that's grown up around snakes knows that's what you use to kill a snake. A week later, the same thing happened across the street. The police were called, and a local science teacher identified the species native to a region thousands of miles away. The police visited Moorer Animal Company, the pet shop a block away. Rio Moorer acknowledged he kept cobras, but said none had escaped. As the weeks progressed, however, Snicks kept appearing. The third in a yard was also dispatched with a hoe. The fourth on a roadway was run over repeatedly with a car. The fifth appeared in a woman's garage where she happened to keep her hoe. And the sixth was captured by mower himself near the shop. The seventh Cobra prompted the greatest response. A man saw it disappear beneath his house and he called the police. The chief arrived with a homemade Quote, Snake catcher, unquote, which was a rope noose attached to a ten-foot pole. When it proved of little value, police threw a tear gas grenade under the house. The cobra came out and was hit by five slugs from an officer's pistol. But the reptile wasn't quite dead, so the police got guess what? A garden hoe. <laughs> Mauer was ordered to move his animals outside the city limits. Anti-venom was shipped in. The eighth cobra was crushed by a rock. The ninth, again, met another hoe. The city's health director drove a truck around blaring so-called snake charming music. A tenth snake was killed that same day. Maurer denied any involvement in the great snake escape until his death in the 1970s, and locals assumed the chance of learning what really happened had passed away with him. Then in 1988, a man named Carl Barnett made a shocking statement in the Springfield news leader I'm the one that done it. Barnett had been 14 years old when the Cobras appeared. After 35 years, he said a friend had convinced him the community deserved an explanation and an attorney had assured him he wouldn't be charged. Barnett told the newspaper that Maurer had given him an exotic fish in early August 1953 as part of a trade, but the fish died the first night Barnett brought it home, so he went back to complain. He was just ugly about the deal and told me, that's tough, kid, get lost, Barnett recalled in the newsletter. Leaving the shop, Barnett saw a crate of snakes out back and assumed they were harmless. He released them and figured, well, now he and the shop were even. When the Cobras began appearing, Barnett recalled, I realized what I'd done and I was scared to death. Every time someone mentioned the Cobras, I just wilted. The 11th snake was captured on October 25th, 1953 and taken to the local zoo. It died there two months later. For a while, residents feared more snakes would appear, but this was to be the last of the escaped snakes. And the Springfield Cobra Scare was then history. Thankfully. (laughs) Now see, I had always thought that the importation of poisonous snakes as pets to this country, but was illegal but i looked it up and it's not it's illegal to import large constrictors like anacondas and pythons but uh, because apparently these are escaping into the wild especially in subtropical florida where they're now doing python hunts uh and it's become a major problem it's destroying the ecosystem down there they're getting a hold of bobcats and baby animals of all sorts but um uh, Apparently, it's not illegal to import poisonous snakes like cobra and pit vipers. Not an issue. But let me ask you, why would you want a pet that on one bad day could bite you and you'd die? I I don't get it. I like dogs and cats. So again, thanks to Jeff and everybody at Mother's Brewing Company. We had a great visit down there. We're going to go back and see them very soon. Mother's Brewing Company is located at 215 South Grant Avenue in Springfield, Missouri. The Tasting Room is open Tuesday through Thursday, 4 to 8 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 1 to 10 p.m., and Sundays, 2 to 8 p.m. And they have, like I said, 24 different brews on tap, some of them only available at the Tasting Room. To learn more about Mother's Brewing, check out the website, mothersbrewing.com. Hey! Da-da-da-da-ya! Yeah. Ha! Hey! on scale of
3: What's the rumpus?
1: Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing?
0: Hey Tony, how's it going? Doing well, how are you doing, Alan? I'm doing good, doing good. Uh, where are you today?
4: I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, on way en route to uh, Columbus, Ohio. I just stepped out of a uh, of cold ship. This little micro brew uh, that serves Central State beer,
0: delicious stuff. Okay, um, if you don't mind asking, what's uh, your project in Columbus? Uh, no, I'm working on a story from Pacific Standard magazine. A story about
4: a uh, a Christian rock singer who uh, a couple years ago came out as as gay and is now kind of coming to coming to terms with his fan base and and kind of trying to trying to continue his career.
0: Wow, that's heavy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> man, yeah, I bet that's uh, that's a challenge for that fella. yeah no, for sure. Well, good good luck to him. And uh, anyway, what's the temperature like there in Indianapolis? It's in
4: the low nineties, upper eighties. It's, it's 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 hot. Not quite as humid as back in back in Missouri, but definitely.
0: Oh hot. man, it's going to be ninety seven tomorrow. You go outside, it's <laughs> like walking into a sauna with sunshine. It's wow. Anyway, but that uh, kind of leads us into what you got to talk to us about, brews in the news, man. What do you got here for us? Well, it's, it has to
4: do with the weather, for sure. It's uh, about, about climate change. And essentially, this story comes from a Climate Central, which is an independent organization of scientists and, and journalists who research climate change and its public impact. And uh, they recently did a, a study and a story uh, about how it's going to affect domestic beer production, especially among craft brewers. But uh, according to the USDA... 99% of the U.S. hop crop is, is grown in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington State. 75% of that is in Washington State alone. And just to give you an idea how much that is, that's last year the yield was 104 million pounds, which is actually up 20% from the previous year, which should come as no surprise to us because craft beer in the U.S. is just exploding. Um, and that overall it takes about 53,000 acres of land that they grow hops on. Mm-hmm. And in Washington... Uh, a lot of what they grow is uh, their two major hops are Cascade hops, which you find in Anchor Liberty IPA and, of course, in C- Sierra Nevada, which is hugely pop- popular all over the country. Uh, and they grow Centennial hops, which is uh, your dogfish head and your, your bell's too hearted, especially in the Midwest. Um, and the problem is, is that uh, recently, due to climate change, uh, there have been more frequent, longer and more extreme periods of drought. And, of course, what that means is that they're going to have to irrig- irrigate their crops and the problem is that most of the water available for that irrigation comes from yearly melting of the snowpack from the mountains now warming uh, warming of the climate means less snow more rain and that puts the emphasis on the groundwater to irrigate, irrigate the hop crop um, water from the ground is going to have a higher mineral content and that's going to seep into the hops and change that the taste of your beer now if that's not enough to alarm you uh, a little bit and kind of get you concerned about you know get drinkers concerned about climate change the worst outlook is for barley, which, of course, in the U.S. is mostly is it's used the most commonly used grain in fermentation of beer. Uh, and in the U.S., barley is grown in the upper Midwest, the northern Rockies. And last year, due to the heat waves and all the droughts, Montana farmers, for instance, produced 23 percent less barley for, for the beer market than they did in 2016. Now, that, that doesn't mean craft beer is just going to disappear overnight. Obviously, they're going to find a way to make your beer. But if domestic barley production continues to drop, if the climate continues to shift, it's going to increase the cost of beer production, making it tough for small brewers to stay afloat. And, uh, and you know, the ones that do manage to survive, they're going to pass that cost on to the consumer. And so, I mean, our beers are going to get more expensive. So for everybody that's not not worried about climate change, for all the other reasons, you know, you know, the melt, the melting of the polar ice caps, you know, you know, water world essentially happening. Um, you can at least be concerned it's going to hit you in the pocketbook when it comes to buying your, your favorite craft beer.
0: Wow. That's, uh, and then you said, where was that art- article could be found, the whole article? Climate It's change.
4: like uh, Climate Central, which is an independent organization, uh, just scientists and researchers that, that just do research on, uh, on climate change.
0: You know, I watched a documentary last week, a BBC documentary on the Permian extinction. From two hundred, yeah, from two hundred and fifty million years ago, and it 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 scared me. And here's why: the, you know, for years they thought that uh, the Permian extinction was the same as the Cretaceous extinction. It was caused by either an asteroid or a comet striking Earth. But it, within the last decade, there's evidence now that it was really started with a massive volcanic volcanic eruption activity over a course of a couple of thousand years, which dumped all of this. Tons and tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Well, that warmed up the oceans by 5 degrees centigrade. And you say, well, that's not much. Well, it's 9 degrees Fahrenheit. And what that did then was it caused an extinction of all the marine life. And then all of this methane gas that was frozen in the ocean beds, it it came out, it went into the atmosphere. That caused the temperature to rise another five degrees Celsius. And so over the course of a 10 or 20,000 years, the atmosphere rose in about 15 to 20 degrees Celsius. That would be 36 degrees Fahrenheit. And this destroyed, first it struck the marine life, like the coral reefs and all of this stuff. It wiped that 90 for, 95% of all the marine life and then it hit the terrestrial animals nine, and, and species, vegetation. 95% of all life on land was, was wiped out. Now, and, and it was another 60,000 years before the Earth began to cover. Now, here's the scary thing. Since 1950, temperatures on Earth have risen an average of 2 degrees Celsius. We're only 3 degrees Celsius away from the beginning of the Permian extinction. And at the current rates, 0.2% Celsius, excuse me, 0.2 degrees Celsius are rising in the atmosphere temperature every decade. So within 150 years, if not less, because this temperature rise is exponential, we're going to be looking at the same temperature levels and CO2 levels that you saw at the Permian extinction. Now... The, the, and right now, in our world, right here today, there's never been higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere than there have been since the Permian. Now, if that doesn't get people's attention, and I know there's a, this isn't a political thing, this is a survival right. thing, you know, if this doesn't get people's attention, we may be already at a tipping point, but there are things that we can all do in our daily lives to try to reduce our carbon footprint, I'm not saying everybody ought to become hermits and live in a shack with no electricity, no running water, and especially no good quality craft beer. But there are things yeah. we can do and I think it's I think it's imperative upon all of us to try to make yeah. some steps. Little things.
4: Well, absolutely. And also, you know, I mean, just recycling your craft beer cans and bottles and using growlers. I mean if you if you want to make it to for the for the drinker, the small things you can do
0: absolutely. every day every day absolutely and as you know you know most of the uh most of the craft breweries now are going away from glass they're going to aluminum mm-hmm. aluminum is cheaper it's more uh it's more environmentally friendly it's easier to recycle and so yeah uh, better tasting beer yeah i, I believe opinion. so i believe so better tasting beer anyway keep the light out so what uh, what kind of uh, pint are you sipping on there
4: uh, you know, I did a flight. I try to do a flight everywhere I go. But they uh, they had this, they had a brown, and they had this what they call an oat explosion, uh, which was which was fantastic. So I'm I'm still kind of getting getting a little bit of everything, but it's been fantastic.
0: Well, great. Well, I'm gonna pop one open. I'm almost done with the show here. I'm gonna pop one open in a bit. Hey, you have safe travels, and we'll talk to you next time. We'll do. I'll bring you back some uh, some craft beer from Columbus, Ohio. Great, great. Tony Rehagen, everybody, uh, independent, freelance journalist. Thanks, Tony. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Alan.
1: You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our blog on website, thebrewsetraveler.com. Cheers. Well, and cheers to you,
0: Jess. And to all of you out there, cheers. Prost, Slantcha, Salute, and here's to you. Thanks again, guys, for finding us out here on the podcast universe. And as Jessica said, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Bruce Trav So, guys, thanks again. Uh, No RV rookie segment this week. We just kind of ran out of time. Be sure to listen to our other episodes that are dropping today. And if you like what you heard, please show us some love and give us a five-star review over on iTunes. The official music for The Bruised Traveler is provided by our good friends, Gaelic Storm. If you'd like to know more about their music, check them out at GaelicStorm.com. All their music is available over on iTunes. That's Gaelic Storm. Additional music provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then contact Ben Sound. That's B-E-N-Sound.com. So until next time, please drink locally, think globally, take care of each other and the earth. It's everything we've got. So I'm on down the road. If I don't run into you at your favorite tap room, I'll see you right here on the Bruise Traveler Podcast. And Mary Lee, you are the measure of my dreams. Goodbye, everybody. We crack mug cuppa, toast
3: and a jelly. The weather forecast is on the telly. Dairy gold, cloudy skies. Bacon rashers, beans and fries. HP brown sauce, salt and a pepper. A duffel coat and a woolly sweater. Everybody's got a dream. This is mine. I want to island. Sometimes in sunshine, 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 sunshine. Chuck streets are drowning Looking gloomy, my is frowning Mushrooms are looking overdone Clouds are beating up the sun Farmhouse eggs done over easy Cold coming when I'm breezy Everybody's got a dream, this is mine I want an island in the stream And sometime in sunshine, sunshine Sunshine, sunshine! Whistle along, the kettle is calling. Sleet and snow, the pressures the Marmalade that comes from Spain The rain falls mainly on the plain Patchy fog, it's ten degrees Black pudding jam, a mushy peas. Everybody's got a dream, this is why I want an island in the stream And some time of sunshine, 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 sunshine
0: Is not a temple, it's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. Anthony Bourdain, June 25th, 1956, June 8th, 2018.